This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thousands of desperate migrants have gathered at the Belarusian-Polish border, encouraged by the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, to go there in the hope of gaining access to EU territory. The result so far has been heartbreaking and tragic, including a number of deaths. What's going on? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies, that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we explore the migrant situation on the Polish-Belarusian border with Nick Michinski, assistant professor of political science and international affairs at the University of Maine. He is a Ph.D. in political science from the CUNY Graduate Center and has written extensively on EU border control and immigration policy. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nick Michinski. Thank you. Okay, so let's launch right in. Uh, You know, maybe you could just start by explaining for our listeners what exactly is going on at the Polish-Belarusian border um, those gathered there, as far as I can see, are primarily from Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere in the Middle East. You know, how did they get there? What are they doing there? Absolutely. Um, so, first off, there are uh, thousands of Iraqi Kurds and Yazidis, uh, Syrians, Afghans, um, also some uh, people from other random places in the world, on the border with Poland and Belarus. They're attempting to cross into the EU, presumably to claim asylum. I think that's important to mention that it's not just migrants. They are uh, coming to claim asylum. Um, the numbers are a bit rough. Uh, about 4,000 people crossed into Lithuania in 2021. That's a huge uptick um, from Belarus, mostly to claim asylum. And somewhere between three and 10,000 people have been trying to cross the Polish border, but most of those have been pushed back. Um, and so there are many people making repeated attempts. So the numbers get inflated, of course, because of those repeated attempts. So how did these people get to, um, to Belarus? Well, reports um, suggest that uh, Lukashenko has encouraged or in some cases actually organized people to travel to Belarus in order to cross into the EU to claim asylum. Going so far as to take out advertisements in the Middle East, um, the Belarusian state-owned uh, uh, airline added direct flights from Baghdad, Damascus, and Istanbul directly to uh, Minsk. And the state-owned travel agency has helped organize uh, visas for many of these people. 
Once in Belarus, the, the people are staying in government-owned hotels in Minsk and, um, and then taken by bus in mass to the border. Uh, many then just try to, to, to cross again and again or are left in these forests which are freezing overnight. I mean, the temperatures are really, really uh, uh, drastic and um, it's a, a humanitarian crisis. On the Polish side, the, the uh, Polish uh, government has called this a hybrid attack and accused uh, Lukashenko of using migrants as a weapon. In August, Poland declared a state of emergency and has stationed some uh, 15,000 troops on the border. And they created a restricted zone and have prevented journalists and aid workers from going near the border. Actually, I've heard from some friends to say that they are getting text messages, um, migrants as they approach the border or, or even journalists near the border, getting text messages from the Polish officials saying the border is sealed. Go back to Minsk. Many people have attempted to cross and, and actually the, the uh, Polish police are violently pushing them back, although some have gotten across and claimed asylum. And um, this has left thousands of people stranded in the uh, the uh, the border area. So just this week, many people were moved on the Belarusian side to a warehouse and have started receiving some aid. Um, and uh, earlier this week, uh, I guess last week now, uh, 500 people were voluntarily repatriated to Iraq. So um, there's some sort of de-escalation going on there, I think. I think overall we should we should take a step back and and look at how um, Belarus got to this part. Just maybe we can talk about last year's election because this is a key turning point for um, how Lukashenko is thinking about its relationship. So of course in August 2020 um, there was a, a an election. It was obviously very corrupt, and um, the EU, the US, others don't recognize Lukashenko as the president anymore. He's been uh, in power for 27 years, but that election uh, was completely flawed and uh, huge uh, protests afterwards. Again, uh, this sort of leads to the tensions between the EU and Belarus. Um, uh, some uh, economic sanctions started back after the elections and um, sort of a gradual escalation of seemingly, I think, erratic but strategic moves by um, Lukashenko about how to, to make trouble with the EU. So first, um, in May this year, we uh, saw the Ryanair flight be forced down with an activist um, and the EU sort of freaking out. What does this mean that European airlines can be uh, bullied by um, Belarus? In um, in uh, June, the EU, US, UK, Canada put additional sanctions on Belarus. So they have travel bans, um, asset freezes, other sanctions. And um, the EU put economic sanctions specifically on Belarusian um, airlines. And then I think, interestingly, in August, um, a Belarusian uh, runner at the Olympics claimed asylum, uh, specifically saying that sh she was being forced back to Belarus by her coaches. And in fact, the country that she got asylum from was Poland. Now, I think this is all important for how we think about what's happening next. Um, at this point, uh, we see Lukashenko strategically emerging with this weaponization of migrants against the EU and specifically Poland. So maybe I'll stop there and we can and go into more detail in other areas. Great. Well, that's very helpful. Uh, I mean, one point you made uh, that I think we really need to follow up on is the uh, the claim that this is more about asylum seeking than than migrants. I mean, what I have seen suggests that that's that may not be the case, that many of these people are not, you know, really 
can, could not in any realistic sense be expected to be classified as, you know, asylum seekers, refugees. Could you explain, you know, why you say um, you think that this is an asylum situation? Well, um, the the first reason is that most of the people who come to Europe right now, uh, Syrians, Iraqis, and Afghans, the 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 legal pathway that they come is through asylum. So they um, in Greece when they came to Germany, uh, when they come to Italy, they apply for asylum and then their cases get heard from there. So in that respect, that that's what I mean is that the way that they would be. Uh, crossing the border, they're going to apply for asylum and then judges in Poland or elsewhere will adjudicate if it's a, a legitimate uh, asylum claim, claim. So that's the first reason. Um, the second right. would just be that, I mean, these are the locations that they're coming from have historically had higher asylum rates than anywhere else. So most of the people who are being sent back from uh, the EU are going back to Nigeria or Ethiopia or um, uh, Congo, these places that um, have much lower asylum rates, whereas um, Ezidis have very high asylum um, uh, success rates in uh, in um, in the EU. So that would be my, my first thing. And then the, the last is that we don't know people's um, uh, claims for asylum until they go through the, the process. And um, and uh, Europe has some of the most rigorous asylum systems. So we should let them go through those process before we prejudge actually what their their situation is. So, I mean, do you know what the rates of, you know, acceptance or, or of, you know, recognition of asylum um, have been? I mean, what are their chances? I don't know. For the, I mean, these uh, cases specifically are going to take years or, or months before we find out. Mm-hmm. Um, in mm-hmm. the period that I did my research, uh, we had uh, Syrians getting something like 90 percent asylum cases uh, a positive um, it, during the 19, uh, 2015-16 uh, time period. Iraq was a little lower, 70 to 60. Afghan was much lower, but I think you could make a case now that the Afghans would have a much higher rate. So um, mm-hmm. in many of these situations, it's it's individually tied, of course, right? Like uh, asylum is a individual persecution so that you have to get their specific situation. But, um, but w- w- we will see. Of course, I think we can also clarify that just having... The financial means to buy a plane ticket to get to Minsk um, doesn't disqualify people for asylum, right? Um, most asylum seekers have some sort of money to be able to move. Those who don't have any money can't can't be moving, right? Um, so that shouldn't disqualify and, and doesn't disqualify people from claiming asylum. So we've talked, you know, primarily so far about Belarus and its, uh, you know, interest in all of this um, and its, you know, seemingly cynical use of these people for its own political purposes, which is certainly what you hear out of the mouths of the people who are stuck at the border, which, as you say, is not a particularly, you know, terrific place to be. Um, and fortunately there is some humanitarian intervention now, but what, what about the Polish side of this? I mean, what do they get out of, you know, holding the line on letting these people in? Yeah, this is a very important part of the, the politics here. Poland is not exactly the, um, the favorite child of Europe right now. Um, the, uh, the ruling party is the law and justice party, the far right, conservative, um, they actually came to power in 2015 during the original, mi- original uh, 
migration crisis have been happening for decades in Europe, but the the recent uh, migration crisis in 2015 was one of the um, uh, the onuses for the Law and Justice Party gaining so much momentum and their strict like uh, uh, immigration policies that they were proposing. I mean, migration is a very populist issue in Europe, and so it it, it can shore up support for them in that way. I think um, the, the the second point we need to think about is that uh, Poland um, has been in uh, the European Court of Justice for um, for breaking supposedly EU law. The Court of Justice ruled against Poland twice in the last few months, saying that that Poland was not holding up EU law and has actually been fining them a million dollars a day because of their in violation of that. And so, in some ways. Uh, Poland holding the line here and showing to Europe that immigration is a, a serious issue and you have to take our concerns seriously um, throws it back at the rest of Europe saying, uh, actually, this is how you are going to be doing migration policy in the future. Um, it, it directly plays into um, their hands. You need a strong Poland to be able to hold this this line for them. And in fact, um uh, former European uh, uh, President Donald Tusk, he's actually former Polish Prime Minister, um, suggested uh, earlier this month that they could invoke Article 4 of NATO to try to get even NATO in uh, on this. Now, the EU doesn't want that to happen. They want the European institutions to be how they coordinate the response. But um, all of this will be framed and is being framed as a security issue. Um, and that could you explain what what Article Four? Of course, means? that would be that if one uh, one country is attacked, everyone has to come in, into defense, and um, that would be quite an unusual uh, use of Article Four. Mm -hmm. So you know the situation seems to be very different than the situation that t unfolded in 2015. Um, you know, I've seen something to the effect that the outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel sort of supports. Poland in its stance uh, with regard to this group of people. Uh, and of course, famously in 2015, she said, you know, we'll, we'll manage this, we'll handle this when a million, you know, mostly Syrians and Afghans showed up, you know, on Germany's doorstep. Um, you know, what's going on there? Of course, part of this is no doubt that she's leaving uh, the chancellor's office after 16 years. But uh, what, what would you say is going on? Yeah, I think um, what's different is threefold. One is that uh, Lukashenko is different than um, other authoritarian leaders. Poland is different than it, it was. And the EU is different than its, uh, the internal problems of the EU are different from 2015. So first, Lukashenko is a, a unique authoritarian leader on the border of Europe. Um, it's, uh, the EU has decided that it cannot deal with Lukashenko um, the same way that it's dealing with maybe Erdogan or um, el-Sisi in Egypt, right? Those other leaders, they've sort of decided that they can hold their breath, make a deal, and um, in fact, they've made several very specific immigration deals, right? So one of the ways that the, um, the uh, big migration flows in 2015 stopped was that the EU made a deal with Turkey. They agreed that for 6 billion euros, Turkey would agree to host um, many of the, the Syrians who are coming across um, and prevent onward migration. And exchange, the EU would, um, well, give the 6 billion year, uh, euros in aid 
and start up uh, um, ascension talks with the uh, with Turkey again and liberalize some of their visas. So this deal was um, uh, sort of a success. The the migration numbers went drastically down straight after the deal was uh, was signed, and the EU sort of said we're okay with this deal because of its costs. Now uh, Erdogan is not the same as uh, Lukashenko. And um, and I think those politics are clear. The EU is not going to do the same sort of deal with um, Lukashenko. The the second is that so that I I'd already talked before that Poland is uh, is a different uh, actor than Greece as Italy. They are um, sort of the rogue state right now in in Europe along with Hungary pushing against European institutions. The EU can't afford another Brexit and has to have unity within the European Union. And um, coming to uh, uh, Poland's um, support is part of that, that they are going to um, hold the line and, and support Poland on this. The last is that migration is a toxic topic for the EU. And since 2015, um, the idea of sort of a burden-sharing mechanism, a everyone taking their fair share through a quota, is again, toxic. I mean, 2015, they agreed on a relocation scheme, right? This was the idea that we could relocate all these thousands of migrants. It was actually 160,000 migrants from Greece and Italy. We'd evenly distribute them across Europe, sort of based on your GDP or population size. So um, Germany would take a, a whole bunch, whereas Poland, I think their number was like a thousand that they were supposed to have. Um, well, that scheme completely failed. First, because logistically they weren't able to relocate many people. They only re relocated 30,000, so that was 20%. And um, many of the countries completely rejected their quota and said, hell no, we're not going to resettle them. Um, that uh, actually leads into where my, my book project um, looks at. I, I showed how the EU delegated responsibility instead of sort of getting the member states to be able to respond. They paid UNHCR and IOM to host many of these, um, these uh, refugees in Greece and are continuing to uh, house and feed many of the refugees. Um, the last thing is that the, the EU thought uh, this last year that they had a new solution. They call it the the new pact on migration and asylum. And this was their hope for how we we're going to change the asylum system in Europe. And the idea was that if there was a influx of migrants, they could have two ways that member states could participate. One would relo relocate, just sort of the quota system. And other, if the states didn't want to take refugees, they could sponsor returns, right? Sponsor deportations. So if you're a hardline, you could just participate in the deportation side. Now, if the, the, the pledges that uh, states uh, had fell short, the commission could request and urge other states to have a fair share, but who knows if that would actually work. Now, that pact has not signed, been signed. It hasn't gotten through, and Eastern European countries are still uh, towing the line that they don't want to have to do any sort of fair share on migration. I think this situation we're in now, I mean, clearly these three things have shifted the dynamic and there is not going to be a big welcoming like Merkel had in 2015. Right. Interesting. So, I mean, I wonder, you know, I can't help thinking about the fact that, as you surely know, 
Um, you know, Joe Biden's approval ratings are kind of in the pits. I think they're lower than any president has been at this point in their presidency since they started collecting the data or 50 or 75 a long time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that people point to, uh, you know, in this regard is has to do with immigration and the perception that, you know, it's not so much on the front page, I think, right at the moment, but uh, the you know, widespread perception that things are kind of out of control at the southern border. I mean, are there any lessons in the European situation for Joe Biden? Hmm. Um, well, I, one of the things I would like to say, I think that we haven't covered is that um, there's a common strategy across the EU and the US, and that is both deterrence and externalization, right? Both the EU and the US want to deter migrants from ever coming to uh, the, the, the countries, and they externalize the policy to get countries that neighbor them to do the migration policies that they want. So if we think about deterrence, I mean, this is literally trying to prevent people who are claiming asylum from ever getting to your borders. So the EU and the US have put in things like carrier sanctions. I mean, this is the idea that airlines will be fined if they actually take someone to a country without a proper visa or if they claim asylum. Um, I don't know if you've heard David Fitzgerald um, has this great line in his recent book about um, the asylum catch-22. States promise to not kick you out if you come here, but we won't let you come here. Right? And I think that sort of epitomizes this overall sort of asylum thing. We have great asylum systems in the EU and the US, but we don't want you to get to them. The, the externalization part is that both the EU and the US pay neighboring countries to try to also prevent. So the EU-Turkey deal is a great example there. Libya is also another example. The EU is pouring money into the Libyan Coast Guard to prevent migrants from coming across. And the same is happening with Biden. Biden has promised um, uh, Mexico and other uh, uh, Latin American countries huge aid packages in the hopes that they will continue to prevent people from coming across. I think what it also, I mean, this and the Belarusian crisis show is that these aid deals, this externalization, the refugee, refugee regime more generally, creates perverse incentives for um, states to use asylum seekers as weapons against the U.S. and the EU. Um, this great book by um, Kelly Greenhill calls it um, Weapons of Mass uh, Migration. And she talks about how these states use migration strategically to push people against and and, and undermine or, or, or um, target their enemy state. Actually, she shows that it's not... Um, a new thing. Belarus isn't the first one to do that. There are 60 plus cases that she says. Um, others were Cuba or Haiti or Libya sending migrants. I mean, this is back in the 80s when they were doing similar, similar things. I think what she points out though is that there's, um, uh, one is weak states do it because they're in a weak position. They don't have other sort of diplomatic tools to, to, to pressure states. And the other is that, um, democracies like the US or in Europe have a hypocrisy cost that if um, if you don't treat these migrants or refugees who are coming to your border in humane ways, then it actually looks worse on you. And I think that's something that we have yet to see on the uh, border with Poland is, is there going to be a hypocrisy cost against the EU for seemingly violating the human rights of asylum seekers on the border? And in a perverse way, they're they're trying to punish um, Lukashenko for his authoritarian practices and now 
are implementing their own authoritarian practices at their own border, which um, is kind of a, a nasty process that um, that migration policies sort of pull in liberal democracies into very authoritarian uh, things at their border. Well, I mean, as you said before, I mean, this is obviously a populist issue. And so I think, you know, to some extent, what Biden is doing is trying to, you know, uh, I mean, people complain that he's continuing Trump's policies, you know, at the border. But I think there is this concern that this is a big part of, you know, his lack, his disapproval ratings. And that if things get out of control, that can be politically very costly. And I mean, I assume that the politicians in the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, you know, are making roughly the same calculation. Um, I mean, it so happens that, you know, von der Leyen is, is German, so she's perhaps particularly attuned to this particular dynamic. But um, wouldn't you say that that's kind of, I mean, that they're basically worried about, you know, the political fallout from this. Yeah. And, and possibly encouraging you know, more people to show up at that border, some other border. Absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely political. I mean, the impact of asylum and immigration on domestic politics is clear. It has um, very clear um, populist uh, uh, ramifications. Um, asylum and refugee status has also always been politicized, right? The asylum regime emerges after, during the Cold War in this time when asylum was given to defectors from the Soviet Union as a very strategic, trying to embarrass the Soviet Union in a similar way. And um, I think in, in one version that you could go forward is say, okay, let's embrace that asylum and refugee status is thoroughly politicized. And Embrace that and know it and then use it strategically to, to, to offer it as much and as strategically as possible. There's always going to be a political backlash there, but, um, but there is a sort of strategic tool hidden in that. In uh, the Belarusian side, they are able to use it strategically against the EU, but the US and, um, and Europe can also use asylum strategically on the other side. I mean, offering asylum to Afghans in uh, post uh, uh, the withdrawal can be strategic. I mean, the way the U.S. Uh, offered a massive resettlement of Vietnamese after um, the, the pullout was strategic. We embraced that this was our responsibility and then um, have had a huge success of the Vietnamese community in the U.S. since then. Not always politically viable, but also uh, there are opportunities to all of these um, crises. So, I mean, there is a way in which what's going on on the Polish-Belarusian border is part of much larger European migration slash asylum policy, um, which, alas, often gets in the news because of, you know, would-be uh, crossers drowning, you know, capsizing a boat in the Mediterranean and those kinds of tragic stories. And I wonder, I mean, partially, of course, this is simply to do with the fact that Europe and North Africa are separated by the body, by the Mediterranean. Uh, and at the U.S. border, it's basically the Mexican border. Um, but, you know, it does seem that there's an, an awfully large share of, you know, tragic outcomes on Europe's borders insofar as their border, you know, some of them are, are water rather than land. But, um, you know, is that something that's going to get fixed anytime soon? Is that something that, that we can hope for, you know, uh, better outcomes so that people aren't dying trying to get into, into European Union territory? 
This is very hard. It's a very, very hard situation. Um, thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean because of the capsized boats. I consider this a crisis of reception, not uh, of um, of refugees, right? Uh, in in Europe, it means Italy and Greece having much more reception capacity and being able to host people. It means organizing a much more coordinated search and rescue campaign um, throughout the Mediterranean. And um, frankly, not um, the, the EU's deal with the Libyan Coast Guard is a, a sort of scar on their human rights record. We have documented cases of um, EU-assisted Libyan coast guards who take um, asylum seekers from the middle of the Mediterranean and push them back to um, uh, the Libyan coast where they're put in detention centers that I'm sure you saw these photos looked like a slave auction at one point, right? This is shocking that the EU could participate in that, right? The hard part here is that um, we know what has to happen. Search and rescue is not logistically that hard of a thing. You have to fund it. You have to put money into it. And after the 2014 sort of uh, Lampedusa crisis in Italy, um, Italy actually expanded their uh, search and rescue capacity and had huge success. I mean, they were able to save thousands and thousands of lives because they expanded that capacity. Now, the political backlash to that meant that they had to cut it, and the EU also cut theirs, which led to the 2015 and 16 and 17 crises. But um, we know what to do. Expand the search and rescue and save people's lives. Politically, very, very hard. But um, uh, humanitarian-wise, there's a very simple answer. I mean, it used to be not so long ago, it seems to me, that there was a, you know, a pretty robust discussion of the fact that Europe is not exactly a growing population and that it's, in fact, an aging population. Uh, I remember uh, in a recent, relatively recent book of Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, that Brzezinski said something like, you know, Europe's major political aspiration these days seems to be the world, to, to want to be the world's most comfortable retirement home. Uh, and so just as in, say, Japan, um, you know, it seems that they're going to have to make some changes in their policies in order simply to, you know, take care of the aging population that they have. Now, that obviously requires overcoming a certain amount of cultural, religious, you know, and other kinds of, um, you, know, you know, sort of lack of understanding or, or, or you know, unfamiliarity slash, you know, racism, et cetera. Um, so do you see that uh, playing a role at all in kind of changing immigration policy into, into Europe? Possibly. I think the best case scenario there are expanded guest worker circular migration programs. And the use in some countries have um, like very targeted schemes like that for uh, nurses or um, some sort of uh, high, higher skilled thing. Um, the difficulty with those are um, circular migration programs always presume that you're supposed to leave at the end and that this is just a temporary moment. And that doesn't solve either the labor crisis or the the um, immigration issue, right? Circular only sort of pushes it off for another generation or another thing. And, and people don't necessarily want to live their lives in these halfway 
points. Um, I mean, um, circular migration had always happened between Morocco and Spain. The uh, sort of undocumented migration that occurred in the last uh, 20 years was because they shut down the sort of natural circular migration that had always happened back and forth. And so people didn't feel like they could return back home because they would, wouldn't have a way to come back to their job or wouldn't have a way to go back and see their family. So, I mean, there are ways of organizing really uh, rigorous immigration schemes and helping people fill both the labor gaps and their aspirations for economic opportunities. Um, but it means um, expanding and uh, creating these opportunities for many more people, many, many more people. And that is very, I mean, the, the schemes that have been proposed so far in the, are in the thousands, not hundreds and thousands. And, and the hundreds of thousands are the levels that Europe needs in terms of the the capacity. So um, ambition on that side needs to be expanded and broadened in many by by magnitudes there um, much more. Right. Right. But it is a tough problem, as you say. I mean, obviously, there's concerns about letting people in and whether that affects the job market and, uh, you know, sort of the cultural differences between the groups that would be coming and, and you know, Europe's historic ability or otherwise to take in you know, culturally different uh, immigrants. I mean, it's definitely a tough problem. Um, and, of course, you know, there's the famous comment that you were probably thinking about as you spoke that I can, I'm, I'm blanking now whether it was Max Frisch, but the, the famous comment about we wanted workers, but people came. And, of course, you know, they had lives and they built families and then, you know, they weren't particularly inclined to leave. Uh, and of course, this has helped transform the face of modern Germany and France and Italy and the UK, etc. Yeah. So, I mean, less so in Eastern Europe, but um, that's probably part of the Polish, you know, yeah. lack of enthusiasm for what's happening at their Belarusian border. So maybe you could just say in closing, you know, what do you think is going to happen here? Um you know, it does seem that some steps, some positive steps have taken place in this past week. As you mentioned, maybe you could say a little bit more about that and, you know, what you think and hope is going to happen there. Yeah, it's uh, di very difficult to predict. It could go, um, it could both escalate or de-escalate. We'll, we'll see as, as it happens in the next few weeks. I mean, on, on one side, there are thousands of people still in Belarus that didn't cross the border and could be in dire humanitarian situation in the next few months to year, right? Are they going to apply for asylum in Belarus? Could be a hard scenario to see a lot of uh, these people staying in Belarus because of that. On the other side, it, if they are genuine asylum seekers who are fearing for their life in Iraq or Syria, then Belarus is a safer place for them. So they could stay. The question is if Belarus will legalize them, provide some sort of aid or allow them to work. Now, that would be amazing if they actually did. Not necessarily um, uh, really feasible or, or, or a likely scenario. Um, the other side is, is will um, the EU take in many people? Um, I think that's unlikely as well. They're not going to create a resettlement uh, mechanism from the Belarus side to, uh, to EU. What will happen is the few people who get across the border will apply in Poland and have their cases seen and um, and actually have support and aid from there. There are some optimistic things. There. I've seen some a few uh, reports about um, Polish citizens and providing humanitarian aid to those who, who do get across, putting green lights up in their window to show that it's safe to come to them for support. 
Um, and that is uh, one of the optimistic sides, I think, of uh, European, Europe's approach to migration is that um, citizens have a huge outpouring of support, um, not necessarily politically through the populist movement, but through on-the-ground aid. I mean, this was a common thing in Greece and Italy when the migrants came, is that um, that people volunteered and donated across all of Europe to provide support for them. So we could see that on the on the Polish side as well. And then um, a, a common and easy response for the EU is to pour humanitarian aid into uh, into the country, uh, into Belarus side from sort of a UNHCR or an IOM. That's the UN Refugee Agency or the International Organization for Migration. Um, this is classic strategy that instead of uh, getting aid money dirty by putting it through the Belarusian government, you get the UN to implement it on the ground there. And I think that's probably the most likely thing, is that you'll get a UN agency in there to provide direct humanitarian support. The long-term likelihood of what's going to happen is um, is that politically Belarus is still trying to get the EU to pay attention to it and to, 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 uh, to sort of warm relations. And I don't see that necessarily happening because of this migration crisis. Right. Well, thank you very much for all these insights about what's going on in this very unfortunate situation. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Nick Machinsky for sharing his insights about the migrant crisis on the Polish-Belarusian border. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. International Horizons.